Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody, or whatever time you're listening to this. Welcome to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website, and I, I forgot to open my calendar. I, I don't. I, I can't keep track of the days. So the welcome to the March 6, 2015 edition. And uh, tonight's special guest is Leslie Penelope coming to us from the Baltimore area. And uh, let's just jump right in and just say uh, welcome to the show. How are you tonight? Good. How are you? I'm not bad for a guy my age. Um, most people my age are dead, but uh, I'm doing okay. So. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Yes, exactly. So um, I, you've been characterized as a writing junkie um, and a romance junkie, excuse me, um, and you live uh, with an 80-pound lap dog and a tack cat and a husband. Right. Um, I never had any furry pets, but I did have attack guppies. Um, <laughs> and people say, well, what's, what's the utility in attack guppies? And all I can say is my house was never robbed. Ah. So apparently my guppies did their yeah. job. Um, I think my cat is on the, on the job, too. <laughs> yeah. Does, does, is, do you have a, a fairly, I don't want to say vicious, but let's just say protective cat? I do. He's protective. Um, he's fairly vicious. Sometimes he turns against me, but it's all part of the game, you know. If I if I scream during the interview, it's probably because he decided that he didn't like what I was saying and he, he punished me. So it's all okay, the fine well, line. We'll uh, we'll keep that in mind, and and when you do scream, I won't just immediately dial nine one one to your house. Um, so basically, do you characterize yourself mostly as like a, a writer? Would you call yourself a writer? Absolutely, yeah. I've been writing okay. my whole life, so yeah, I do. Yeah, and then you know, there's there's intimations that you started out pretty young. How young did you start like putting your your writer's imagination together? I have the first story I ever wrote, which was when I was five years old. I call it a novel. It's about a page and a half. But uh-huh. um, so I, as soon as I learned how to write, I was writing stories. I was making up stories. Wow. And and so what fueled that? I mean, you know, that's a pretty young age. I mean, obviously kids all have an imagination, you know, mm-hmm. or most kids do. Um, so how how do you come by that so early? I'm not sure. I think that I was always incredibly shy, like uh-huh. insanely shy, um, okay. very introverted. And uh, so that was the way, you know, growing up from that very young age all the way through, to express myself, to sort of work out what was in my head without actually having to talk to other people. Right. Um, that's probably a large part of it. And and so while your imagination is kind of whatever, I don't want to say going wild, but while it's active, um, what were kind of like the basis of your stories? Were they based on things that you saw around you or 
you know, was it a matter of you having like an inner imagination that was bringing you places that you had never been? Yeah, that's the latter. Um, I I really resisted the whole write what you know thing for a long time, like growing up as a, as a kid and a teenager, because I didn't think what I knew was very interesting, you know. And so I was really, you know, it was all imagination. It was creating new worlds and exploring them and, and imagining different places. And those were what my stories, the things I had no experience with and probably didn't want to have experience with necessarily all the time. But, yeah, all all imagination. And and so, you know, you start that early. You're in um, elementary school, grammar mm-hmm. school, whatever people say. And were you were you a creative writer for your schoolwork, or was this kind of a private thing for you? I did it. Um, I whenever there was an opportunity to do creative writing in school, I did. Um, uh-huh. When I was young, my my parents put me in these writers' workshops almost every summer. A local community college had, you know, some sort of children's writing workshop during the summer. So instead of going to camp like sleepaway camp, I would do stuff like that. And um, whenever there was a, a, a writing class, like I remember when I got to middle school, there was actually a creative writing class, and I absolutely took that, and I loved it. Very cool. And and then, you know, I'm guessing, of course, you wrote through high school and later. Um, mm-hmm. When when did you start thinking about the fact that you could write stories and other people could read them? I I think it was in, around middle school when I wrote this poem and it was published in this, like, I forgot what it was called. It was one of those sort of vanity things, like, you pay some money and your, public, and your poem is published. But as a kid, it was like the greatest thing ever. And people are reading my poem. It was this huge volume of, of other works, like the world's volume of poetry, something like that. And right. so I had that experience kind of early. And um, I was a co-editor of my high school literary magazine, so... I was, you know, already getting myself out there in front of the audiences that I could reach. Um, I considered majoring in creative writing in college, but I kind of put that aside. At that time, I didn't think I wanted to do it for a living. I was like, oh, it would be too hard, you know, if I have to do it. I, assuming that I could have actually made a living at that point writing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but it did cross my mind, and I considered it for a while. Yeah. Um, and and uh, were you a good student, bad student, okay student, average? What you know? How were you grade wise? You know, how did you fit into kind of like the high school hierarchy? Yeah, I was you know uh, I, I was a good student. You know, sort of just I'm not gonna say teacher's pet. I don't know maybe someone else would say that, but um, yeah, you know, little follower. <laughs> well, that was the next little, question. Yeah. Yeah, my mom my mom was a teacher, and um, I guess because I was shy and introverted. I was really good at following rules, and I didn't have a problem with it. I wasn't like a rebel or anything. I kind of just did my thing on a roll and, you know, went home and and wrote and and read like crazy. Yeah, I I wasn't a writer or anything in high school, and it took me until my sophomore year to figure out the trick. And the trick for me was figuring out how to get great grades with less effort than I did getting crappy grades. (laughs) And, uh, well, no, I mean, it it was a trick. You, You know, you... You play your teachers, you know, you play them. and uh, Yeah. Um, yeah, some people are good I, at that and kind of think in that way. I, I just never did. It never really occurred to me. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, okay, so you go through, you know, uh, elementary school, you're starting to write, you're starting, you know, you obviously are extroverted enough 
<laughs> excuse me, to put your writing out there because that's a pretty brave thing, you know, mm-hmm. because, of course, you know, when, when you write and when people critique your writing, you know, if, if they don't like it, then there's tendency, almost a certainty, to, you know, invalidate your sense of self because, oh, they don't like my writing, therefore I must be worthless, therefore blah, blah, blah. You know, and all of these things are things that, that happen to people at any age. It's not necessarily a school thing because, you know, when people, when people ask for a critique for writing, even now online or, or at the uh, Black Science Fiction Society.com website, um, a lot of people are just looking for a cheerleader and don't really want to take a critique. How are you in terms of, you know, people talking about your writing and possibly critiquing it, um, you know, or, or were your stories that well put together that you didn't get much critiquing? I had really, I had good feedback. I mean, I had a lot of support and a lot of, like, positive feedback about my right. writing. I think that um, sometimes I was writing stories that were, I don't know, a little bit crazy or disturbing. Like I was writing like murder mysteries at, you know, nine and ten, and people, my parents were like, um, you know, why are you being so dark? You know, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? <laughs> you need some counseling. Uh, exactly. Some issues yeah. here that we should be talking about. Yeah. Right. So that was the kind of feedback. It was more kind of content when I would go dark with stuff. Um, right. And I, yeah, most of it was positive. I mean, I, I did, you know, in the classes, there was an, an element of critique, and I took it as just always wanting to get better. Um, right. So there's a certain amount of, like, having a thin skin that I think any artist has, but I always sought out critique because I was just really interested in, in just doing the best that I could and, and making sure people enjoyed it and trying to get better. And, and that kind of belies, I mean, yeah, you could be shy, but also, you know, apparently you had a good sense of self, a good enough sense of self to see the utility in listening to other people. You know, a lot of people just go, oh, they didn't like me, They're, or they didn't like my story, therefore they don't like me. So that's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> did you have good support at home, too, while you are growing up and writing? Yeah, definitely. And part of it was like kind of feeling insecure in a lot of other areas, but feeling like I was a good writer and that was the thing, I, that was my thing, you know. So I wasn't right. an athlete, you know, I wasn't, um, like, popular, but I knew I had this thing that I got, you know, I, I thought I was good at it, I was getting good feedback. So that sort of lent me the confidence that um, that I had where I didn't have it in other areas. Right, right. Um, okay, and so once you left high school, where'd you go? Did you go on to, uh, what do they call it, post-secondary education? I did. I went to college. I went to Howard University. Uh-huh. And and what did you major in? I majored in film production. So I had okay. uh, I had this. It was kind of that between that and um, computer science, oddly enough. And um, yeah, I chose I chose film production because it was so creative. I'm, I'm kind of equally left brain, right brain. So you know, I was always interested in sort of technical stuff and mm-hmm. creative stuff. And mm-hmm. um, you know, film, you know, when I was like, oh, I'm not going to major in creative writing because I, you know, but I'm going to major in film. Like, you can have a reasonable, I mean, you can have a reasonable career in various aspects of film, but it, it's not necessarily any more practical. Um, right. You know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, there's an allure there. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I do film production. I do screenwriting. 
there there's definitely an allure to know that what you wrote um not only could it be made into a film but think about that you know here's 100 150 people who are working at essentially my creative behest mm-hmm. and that's kind of cool you know and, yeah. and to be able to tell a story in a way that other people find it so compelling they go hey somebody has to see this so i think that's pretty cool so and and like i mean you majored in film so <clears throat> were you you know did you learn the fundamentals and then jump right into maybe doing some student projects or how did that all shake out because there there are some people who go through howard they do you know the fundamentals they do a little bit of their their student film and either they stop or they just decide this is this is it and then they jump right in what mm-hmm. how was it for you yeah, I remember, you know, jumping in pretty early uh, freshman year, getting involved in crewing on people's films and knowing that that was going to be the best way to get experience, you know, because the classes are, are one thing, but, you, you know, you don't really learn anything until you're out on set um, and in it, you know. Right, right. And I, I understand you did uh, at least one stint for the 48-hour film project. I actually did it five times. Okay, cool. Um, Even better. Yeah. So you didn't learn your lesson, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It was great. The 48-hour film project is just such a fun thing to do when you're, you know, it's not my day job, but I I got to do it every year for a while and get my friends together and make a a movie and go see it in a theater. It's great. And um, how how did you fare? How did you, I mean, were you, were you like the writer, producer? What role did you usually play on your team? I always, um, like it was my team, I always kind of, so I was generally the director. Sometimes I shot it. I was always involved in the writing and the editing, you know. So, you know, it depended on the year, but um, it was always me fielding the team and uh, always trying to make it collaborative because of the time crunch and knowing that everyone's bringing something to the table. Um, sure. something unique. And yeah. uh but yeah. I actually did it six times. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You did it six times? Yeah, I was just going back and trying to remember. Uh Man, yeah. you you must be a lot younger than me because you know, staying up for that whole weekend, because essentially that's what you do. You know, most people probably don't know. Um for those who don't know, the forty eight hour film project is a contest that goes from city to city to city, um, worldwide. And essentially in the contest, you have exactly 48 hours. And and they're not kidding about 48 hours. If you show up a minute late, you're just out of luck. But you have 48 hours to write, shoot, and post-produce a three- to seven-minute movie. And in order to make sure that people don't cheat uh, right before the 48 hours starts, they give you a couple variants, a male and a female variant on a person's name and their job title. They give you a line of dialogue that has to be in the film and a prop. And all of those elements have to be in each each movie, regardless of genre. So essentially when you show up at the 48-hour film project headquarters for your city, you know, you're sitting around, then you pull a genre. And then once you pull a genre, once everybody's got their genre, and if they didn't like it, they get to pull again, but then they have to pull a much hard from a much much harder group of, of genres like uh like musical. Musical not easy to do. Um, we we always prayed we didn't we didn't pull that. And then you have they at at 7 p.m. on Friday night, boom, they let you out of the room, and you have to go and you write. Generally, you write most of the night, 
and then Saturday you do most of your filming, and hopefully if you can get done Saturday, then you can post-produce um, Sunday up until 7 o'clock. You have to show up with your DVD or your flash drive or whatever that has the post-produced movie. Um, when you did the first one, go ahead. I actually got a musical. I think, what was it, the second year I did it, we uh-huh. made a musical. It was, it was supposed to be a hip-hop musical. Um, there was a lot of beatboxing involved. So. <laughs> How did that work out? I think that's honestly one of my favorite ones that I've done. I, I like I kind of like them all. There's one year that I I disavow, but the other five I'm really proud of. <laughs> mhm, mhm. <clears throat> well, um, my first year doing, if you don't mind me telling a little story, do you mind? Sure. No. My my first year, uh, some people asked me, could you help us write? And I said, sure. I had never done a script, but I I knew I had some good writing chops. I could help with. Uh, with, you know, dialogue, with situation, things like that. So we go to the headquarters, we pull our genre, we, we were, we're going back to our headquarters or our little office building where we were going to work out of. And when we got there, uh, the guy who was supposed to be a writer was really an actor. And so I guess he thought by acting like he was a writer, he was going to be a writer. And I had a nervous breakdown. I honestly, I had a nervous breakdown. I was sweating. I couldn't talk to anybody for like 45 minutes. I was just, I was a mess because if if there's no script, you've got like 40, 50 people sitting around there waiting to see what they have to, you know, the props they have to get for the next day, blah, 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 blah. And I, I mentally I was gone, you know. And mm-hmm. finally they calmed me down after about 45 minutes. And uh, I went up on Google and looked at the format of a script and I started writing and I wrote till about 5 in the morning. Oh, so wow. th- they started, they got the tech people there at like 9 a.m., they started setting up. Uh, the actors came in a little bit later because they had brought the, you know, the director phoned them all, I guess, at 4:30 in the morning and told them what their wardrobe was supposed to be. And we shot till about 11 o'clock on Saturday night, and blah blah. blah. We got a, and then you know the next week we had a couple of uh, audience awards for our film, mm-hmm. and then when we got to the big awards, um, I actually won for best script for Chicago. Oh, wow. While ha- you know, after having a nervous breakdown, right? So that's my that's my uh, that's my great forty eight hour film project story. But yeah. I mean, it, uh, people, when you describe it, you know, people really don't. I don't think they get the whole flavor of what that weekend is about. Like here in Chicago, Chicago's a big city. You got to pay for everything. You got to pay for permits. You got to you know you got to pay pay pay. Oh, if the police wow. have to. Let's say they have to redirect traffic away from an alley or someplace where you're you have to pay a fee for the police officers. But during the forty eight hour film project, because you don't know what's going on, the city gives you a pass. So that's really cool that your city will give you a pass to shoot wherever you want. Well, I mean, within reason, obviously they don't want you jumping out of an airplane or hanging out of a building or something like that. But but you're you know, at least you have a, a little more leeway in getting it done. Now, where, what city did you do yours in? I did my first three in D.C. and my uh-huh. last three in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and Norfolk, Virginia. And, and how was that like? I mean, how, how is it filming in D.C.? I would imagine, you know, if you get anywhere near, you know, the Capitol, Smithsonian, stuff like that, it would be a little more restrictive. But, I mean, what, what was your experience? Yeah, we never tried to shoot any of those big locations. I think um, the first time it's in a city, you have to have some sort of landmark there 
but mm-hmm. we weren't. I don't think I was for like an establishing shot or something. Right, right. But yeah. I think by the time I started, they had already had their first one. So it was more like, okay, who do I know um, that owns the club, or who can we can call, you know, talk to the owner and get us into this coffee shop, or whose house can we shoot at, or um, a lot of outdoors. You know, if the weather is good. So I mean, we weren't doing big productions. It was sort of small gorilla type shoots where, you know, we're just using the resources that, that we have before, like, the, you know, in the, in the weeks before I try to lock down some locations, some possible locations that would, you know, be really flexible depending because you don't know what genre you're going to get. Right, um, right. So that was usually my strategy, you know, get the people in place, get some possible locations that will give us permission um, and figure out, you know, where I'm editing, what the logistics are, at a certain point, I lived, you know, too far from the drop-off point. So I was editing right. at home, but I had to find a place to edit that was closer so I wouldn't have, like, an hour drive, you know, and have to finish much earlier. So all of those logistical things. And so, yeah, in D.C., it was just we would shoot in, you know, places that we knew. You know, we were shooting on U Street. We were shooting in Maryland and, you know, just places that we um, had access to that were familiar to the people who are on my crew. Yeah, and and you do try to make it easy on yourself because really, when, you know, 48 hours is not a lot of time. No. And a lot of people don't realize even shooting a seven-minute movie, even shooting a four-minute movie and getting it post-produced and things like that, that's a pretty big deal, which which is why it makes such a great contest. Right. Um, since, you know, since you've done 48-hour uh, film project um, events, have you done other things in film? I did. I co-directed and edited and produced a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. If you're familiar with the website OKPlayer.com, it's originally was the website for the Roots. It's kind of a hip-hop website. The community has grown so much since its origins. But mm-hmm. um, we did a documentary um, in 2005 on online communities and what did it mean to to meet people online. When, when it was still sort of a, a new and scary concept and sure. some relationships with people online, we sort of followed people who created business relationships, friendships, marriages, all through this one particular website where everyone had gotten mm-hmm. together because of a common love of The Roots and hip-hop music. Right. And and did you work directly with The Roots? We we. It was, like, not sponsored by them. I mean, Best Love Appears in the documentary, commented in the documentary. Um, right. So we were able to interview people associated with the site along with just the regular day-to-day users and fans. And um, so it wasn't, you know, official, but it was something that was done by by people, all of us who worked on it met on the site. Yeah, it was a fan film. Yeah, wouldn't essentially. You, it was, wouldn't, yeah, yeah, wouldn't you call it that? I mean... Uh, because well, anyway. it was, it's like a fan, a fan film about this, this thing that they created, this place that they sure. created, to right. that allowed all of these all of the fans to come together, and it, it it sort of surpassed fandom and became just part of life. You know, like sure. it's this impacted people's lives in so many where, ways. Yeah, and where can people catch that online? It is, um, hold on, okaymentary dot com. Okay, what? <laughs> it's kind of a weird title. Um, it's like a play on OK Player, but it's OKMentary, O-K-A-Y-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com. Okay, all right, cool. 
Um, I just wanted to do that because a lot of people pick this up as a podcast later. So even mm-hmm. if I put a uh, a link in the in the uh, chat, people don't see that who who log on later. And we definitely want people to uh, take a look at your work. Um, so while you're doing this, are you still uh, engaged as a writer? Um, you're doing these things simultaneously. You're moving forward on kind of all these fronts, or or are you are you kind of back and forth on it? Give us a little idea of you know. You've yeah. obviously done the film, and that was earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where's the writing at this time? So after college, um, the writing sort of took part, sort of a backseat. I was still kind of writing little personal things. I was writing poetry and song lyrics and short stories here and there, but I wasn't pursuing publication in any way. Um, sort of just a day job, and then when I started working on the film, and just I was I worked I started my business. Um, in 2003. So, yeah, a lot of other things were happening, and so I wasn't thinking about the writing as much as I had been before. Right. And that was um, that was kind of how it went until, well, I, I, when I got my first Kindle, which was probably mm-hmm. 2006 or so, okay. my reading just, you know, I had, I had been, always been a voracious reader, but um, you know, once you get the Kindle and now books are cheaper and you can just download them instantly, I started right. reading a lot more, so much more than I had before. And um, and then if, and then slowly the writing came back. What was really the change was um, after I got married and I moved, uh, my husband was working in, that's when I moved to Virginia from Maryland. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was a newlywed. I, I worked from home at that point full time. Um, in a new place, still fairly shy, you know, difficult to meet people. And I saw a flyer for this uh, writer center, and it's a place called the Muse Writer Center in Norfolk, Virginia. And I started taking writing classes there, just as a way to get out of the house and meet people. Right. And that was 2008, and that was really when this like section of my writing career started, when I became much more serious about just writing, you know, every day and um, finish, trying to finish things. It took me a while to actually finish something, but that was the turning point. And so, okay, that's about 2008. When was the, when was, like, your first book published? This is my first, my first book I just published in January. Very cool. Of, of this okay, year, yeah. so, so, so you spent all that time honing your craft. Um did you have uh, you know you 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 had peers okay that you were seeing you had this this group that mm-hmm. probably the way you say it is was pretty inspirational um how how did that help your process it really i hadn't been critiqued in in a, in a long time probably since college and so when I started taking these writing classes and I got into a kind of a, a workshop that was ongoing, it, they were classes and then there would be a break and basically the same people would sign up again. So you were, uh-huh. you were following people's work as they developed and as they grew. And they, they were following you and, and you were getting good feedback. And you had this group of people who were waiting for your work. Like you had to turn it in every few weeks. And you didn't sure. want to let them down. And that was absolutely that just so vital to me learning how to finish things, not only just honing my craft and, and becoming a better writer, but just becoming a more consistent writer, 
which mm-hmm. also helps mm-hmm. you become better the more you do it. So, um, yeah, that was just so, it was, it was transformational. It really allowed me to get to the point where I really thought that I could write a novel because I, I was writing short stories this whole time. But the idea of a novel just was like, it just seemed impossible. Like, how could I have that much to say? I just had no idea how I would ever do that. So yeah, I did spend I, a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was entirely backwards. You know, I started with novels, and I, I struggle with short stories because uh, apparently there's too many words in me. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> You're long-winded. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't want pre, you know, to prejudge myself or anything like that, but... I mean, I just find it a little more, I mean, I would have benefited from that experience. Um, And I think a lot of people will because, you know, a lot of people are not able to finish a project. And so, you know, learning learning that skill alone is probably, uh, you know, it's more valuable than one would think at the very beginning. You know, people say, oh, yeah, I can write. I, I write all the time. Well, have you finished anything? Well, not yet. And, and mm-hmm. you say, well, why is that? Because, uh, well, you know, I, I, I work all day, I do this, I do that, and it's hard to get into it, and I only write when I feel like it. I mean, I have mm-hmm. friends here in Chicago who tell me that, oh, I've been working on a book. Really? How long? Well, I've been working on it for 11 years. I go, well, okay, so what's <laughs> stopping you from finishing it? <laughs> and that, and that's it. Yeah. They, they haven't learned the art of writing as a job, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it is a job. You know, people mm-hmm. don't realize that it is a job. And if, if you treat it like a job, you'll get it done. Um, I, I, I'm not going to rehash all of my experiences, but, you know, that was the one thing. You know, I figured out if I stop what I'm doing and every day put in a certain amount of number, uh, a certain number of hours, I will finish. And it, and it works. So. And the other so thing that was go ahead. really yeah. vital was um, National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. Okay. Right. For me, I, you know, I had tried, you know, you write, you're supposed to write 50,000 words during the month of November, mm-hmm. and that sounds completely impossible before you've ever done it. You're like, 50,000 oh, words? Sure. Are you crazy? Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I tried for a couple of, several years and failed each time. Um, and then the first year I, I completed it successfully was 2011. And after okay. you do it and you realize you can do that, then the world opens up to you. You're like, okay, these limitations that I put on myself aren't real. I can do this, absolutely. It was kind of liberating, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, you you go through that experience. What, you know, what kind of stories, were you still in the kind of uh, science fiction, um, just, you know, disturbing your parents kind of tale? (laughs) (laughs) I got, um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> My stuff is a lot less disturbing than it was when I was a child. I think I, I worked oh. through that some kind of way. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, um, yeah, sci-fi and fantasy have always been, there's always been something magical, something fantastical about everything that I write for the most part. So um, I was writing Why at that you... time. Oh, go on. No, go ahead. I was uh, I was writing YA and yeah. The paranormal or sci-fi YA for um, you know, those couple of years. Sure. And and so you know, what is the is is the attraction, the limitless imagination of science fiction and and fantasy, 
Or, I mean, why do you think you're drawn to that particular genre? Because, you know, you've got people out there who do uh, love stories or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those, those uh, novels with uh, Fabio on the front of them or whatever. <laughs> I mean, right. what, is, what is it that draws you to, to the genre? I, I grew up watching The Twilight Zone. My mom was a huge Twilight Zone fan. I would stay up on the weekends with my dad watching Doctor Who on PBS. So mm-hmm. all of these, like my favorite shows and, and my family, you know, we were kind of watching things that were, I guess, speculative is the best right. way to describe them. And I was so steeped in that um, X-Files, Twin Peaks, you know, all of these things were kind of formative. And even before mm-hmm. I was even really reading sci-fi, it was these, these shows and movies that were, um, that were kind of inspiring me. So mm-hmm. it was always just natural for there to be something a little weird or supernatural, even if it wasn't sci-fi. You know, I've never really written hard sci-fi, but um, there was always something speculative about what I was interested in. And I think it was because partly because of imagination and just, you know, being um, taken away to another world, and partly just because of the, the way that you can say things without being preachy. I always kind mm-hmm. of had lots of layers of meaning in things that I was writing. I was, you know, kind of working through my experiences. And you can do that in sci-fi and fantasy. And you can have messages that aren't messages, that aren't, like, beating you over the head, you know. Or you, you can write a message and sci-fi puts comfortable social distance or mm-hmm. psychological or sociological distance between you and the reader because they don't have to go, you know, they don't have to confront what issue you're dealing with um, in terms of today's life. Um, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the secret cover that I use science fiction for. Um, you know, I, I write about social issues and things like that. And, you know, if you, if you write about certain things, I mean, we've got this whole psychological white folks feel so beat upon backlash because uh, Barack Obama was elected two times. <laughs> I want to get into this. Well, it's true. I mean, that, yeah. it scared the hell out of them. It scared the hell yeah. out of them. And so mm-hmm. if you talk about, you know, if you write a story about, uh, like, Ferguson, Missouri going berserk and big race war, people will get skittish. People, you know, people have a certain kind of reaction. But if you talk about, well, you know, this happened, you know, in the Venus colonies where we had the Irish over here and we had the Germans over, you know, mm-hmm. it, it gives you social distance, but you're still discussing the same, uh, yeah, you know, the same issues. So, mm-hmm. uh, and and are your worlds are the you know are the worlds in your short stories were they pretty big? You know, were you dealing with bigger issues or or were you kind of drilling down to uh, stories about maybe people, you know, a handful of people and their situation. I mean, what, you know, how, how big a world were you writing about generally? It was, it was always people. It's always character. I'm kind of a character first writer, but uh-huh. they, they always existed in a rich world that, you know, you only see a fraction of in the story. And um, I also wrote a lot of flash fiction, so really, really short pieces where you're you know, laser focused on something very small, but um, that exists or is sort of a metaphor for something really big. You know. Mhm, mhm. Um, so it it sounds like what you did you you kind of went 
you knew you had the idea, you knew you had the desire, and probably, I mean, based upon the, the reinforcement you got through school, you also figured you had the talent. But, I mean, you, you deliberately set out to hone your skills and to hone them fairly publicly because if you're mm-hmm. in a writer's group, obviously you had to perform. Um, it, 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 it kind of belies the notion that you're a shy person. And, <laughs> and you could, well, no, 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 you, you know what I'm saying, right? Because mm-hmm. there, there has to be a certain inner strength to your character to be able to do that. Um, most people can't handle critique. Most creatives can't handle critique because, you know what, I don't know the because. Because they don't know. Because they've never been nurtured. Because, you know, because, because, because. But the fact of the matter is um, people who are very deliberate about honing their skills, about about honing their craft, and about learning the the fundamentals of what they're doing are not as common as those who just want to jump right in and make it happen. Um, is is there something about you that you've identified from the outside that makes you a more deliberate person and and gave you, you know, the impetus to to go ahead and really work on your craft? Because I think that would be interesting for other people to hear, you know, kind of what was your self determinant in in terms of really going out and honing your skills. Yeah, I think I mean some of it is one of the reasons why, you know, artists don't take critique well is just because we're sensitive, because we're right. putting ourselves out there. It's like taking off all your clothes and like, hey, do you like what you see? You know, it's it's so personal. And, and, um, oh, you, you and I, you know, like I'm not immune from that, absolutely. And I sure, think yeah. that might be part of it. Like, I, if I'm going to do that, I want it to be the best that I can make it. So I'm yeah. sort of seeking you know, seeking this, the knowledge and to study with, you know, people who know more than I do and to get their feedback so that um, so that I'm doing the best that I can do. It's just like the, I don't know if it's, there's a level of perfectionism. I don't think I'm a perfectionist completely, um, but I'm sort of a control freak. And that quality control, you know, right. it's, it's when okay, I've written this thing and I need, I feel good about it. In a way, it's validation, but it's also just, I guess quality control is, is a good way. I, and I've sought out workshops. I've sought out um, you know, critique partners and things like that because I, I don't know how else to do it. I, I guess there's a certain um, lack of whatever it is in people that can just be like, I wrote this and now it's perfect and ready for the world. I don't have that. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I don't. I, I would if I could buy that, I would be saving up right now. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but that's that's pretty cool that you had that you know that kind of that insight about the craft and the insight about quality control. Um, you know, there like you said, um, creatives can be sensitive and they can they can. Well, they have all the foibles of being overly sensitive. And, and a lot of people just don't realize that just because somebody didn't like your your story, your 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 first novel, your your film, your your sculpture, whatever, that's not an invalidation of self. Mm-hmm. But but it you know creatives are so tied into what it is they create. Sometimes it's very very hard to to put that psychological distance between you and your work, and 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 to realize that, well, this is not an invalidation of self. This is not some sort of statement on my place in the world or whether I'm a worthy person. Um, I just I just wrote an effed up story. You know what I'm saying? 
Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, a lot of people don't get to that. They don't get to that that level of realization. So um, when when you go back, let's see, you've had your book out since January, right? Right. Um, is this is this you on the cover, by the way? No, you were not the first okay. person to ask me that, but um, people say you well, might people, have. People like, always want to know. Yeah. I didn't even think she looked like me, but even my, some of my relatives just asked, you know, oh, she looks like you. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you've had the book out, you know, a very short amount of time. So it's it's probably not fair to try to, you know, evaluate you based upon what other people say, but what kind of feedback have you gotten so far um, about the work? Because um, I'm wondering, you know, did did you have readers read your mm-hmm. book before you, you know, got it to that point. Um, did you have people who helped you, you know, work through things or you, you, you know, I, it got so that some people just wouldn't accept my calls anymore because they're going, no, don't read me your book anymore. Don't, no, I can't really, I have to sleep. I have a life. I don't even like you. So um, what, what was your process um, to getting it to the point where, where you finally published it? Um. So I mentioned NaNoWriMo before and um, going to workshops. I have I was really fortunate to have two really great critique partners who we've been all working together to get our books published. So, okay. um, you know, Kara Stevens and Inez Johnson, and we, we were at a workshop together. We, we've stayed in touch since then. We did NaNoWriMo together uh, two years ago, and we pushed each other through. And so we made this pact that we were all going to publish our books. So I do, I have readers and I have people that we, we kind of created a little Google group and we keep each other, it, 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 accountability partners is basically what it is. And I think mm-hmm. that every writer needs accountability partners, you know, for those days when you're like, I didn't get any words today or, you know, I'm giving up on the story. You can have somebody be like, no, or, you know, let me read it or, you know, whatever encouragement and checking in on you and just keeping you on task. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. that's really vital, having people in your corner. And when I decided that I wanted to publish independently, um, you know, I didn't even send it to agents or anything like that. I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do it, do indie publishing. I'd been doing a lot of research. And I knew that I wanted to do it as professionally as possible. I wanted to make it sure. as indistinguishable as possible from the big five publishers because those are who you're competing against. Right. So... I, not only did I have my critique partners, I, I found beta readers, and I hired professional editors to go over it, and um, you know, professional cover designer. And so I wanted just to make it. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to put this out into the world, you know, that quality control thing. I just wanted to be the best product that I can afford to put out there, and that you know, I'm really proud to put my name on. Right. Um. And and so tell us a little bit about the process. You said you had professional editors. Mm-hmm. Um, you had beta readers. Yeah. And, and, and how did you get to, what was your process to getting to the actual point where you uploaded it to whomever you did to do your fulfillment for your printing and things like that? Um, was, it, was your editing process a very long process? How long did it last? Um, I, so after I had the, the first beta read, um, and did the revision. I found a developmental editor through um, one of the writing groups, online writing groups I'm on, 
And so that was, I'm trying to remember, that's the editing process for me. It, it kind of took a long time because that first developmental edit, you know, the editor came back with an eight-page letter about everything that's wrong with the book, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I had to go back, and it took a few months to fix everything. Um, right. And then, you know, have a few more people read it and uh, copy edit and then proofreading. So that did take about about four months total, I think, from the beginning of the editing uh, until, well, maybe five months, until the, the final proofread. So I get it back from the proofreader. Uh, because I am a website developer, I, was, I formatted the e-books myself. I also formatted okay. the, the print books um, myself because I had experience doing that. And I did, so I did both uh, e-book and print-on-demand. And then, um, yeah, I put it up for pre-order on Amazon and sent it to CreateSpace and got my physical proof copies back and started telling everybody, that, oh, I have a book. I wrote a book. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, just for the brief time that you've been published, um, have you gotten much feedback on the book? I have. Yeah, I've been really pleased with the feedback. I mean, you know, when you put it out there, you know, obviously not everybody's going to like it. It's not for everyone. And I had to kind of get ready for whatever people had to say about it. Um, but it's, I mean, it's on Goodreads and Amazon. I think it's got, you know, on Amazon a little over four point something stars average. And um, so, you know, the reviews that I've been getting, the feedback I've been getting is largely positive. And um, so yeah, I, I've been really, I've been really pleased with that. Mm-hmm. And is this a standalone, or do you see this as a, a series? Um, tell the people a little bit about the story. Sure, it's it's a planned series. There's, I have four books planned, and it's a it's a fantasy romance or romantic fantasy, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, it's like a it's vaguely like very lightly steampunk, almost diesel punk, really. It takes place in the alternate 1920s world where there are, it focuses on these two nations that have been at war for 500 years, and there's a magical barrier between them. And my main character is biracial. So she has parents from each, each country that have been at war. And so she um, isn't, isn't accepted fully by either. She's basically an outcast in the land that she lives in because uh, one of the people is magical and one is not. And so it's about her leaving her isolated world where her parent, her family has tried to shelter her from this um, reality, the hostility that she's going to face and kind of being forced out into the world and trying to find her place and trying to find uh, some place to belong and, and ending up being really important to the future of these nations and to ending with long war. And and so the first the first volume of your four um, that covers like her earlier life. Now each each volume is is kind of is going to cover different people. So it's a, in the oh, larger okay, world. Good. Yeah. Uh-huh. So her complete story. I mean, you're going to see her again. Um, but the the whole series uh, is about these two nations and kind of the future that happens. So they've been at war. Um, what happens in the future with these with these people and, and the characters that you meet? Okay, and so how did you go about world building? Um, were were you at the point where you were doing the the character driven story first, or did you lay out the world that they were going to inhabit? Um, 
what what was your creative process? This book is really interesting because I I wrote the first draft. It was supposed to be a novella. It ended up being 90,000 words by the end. But my first right. draft was 20,000 words, and I wrote it in two days. I had this burst of inspiration. I saw these characters in my head. I wrote like 10,000 words one day and 11,000 words the second day, and my wrists were very angry at me. But um, I had these people <laughs> that had come alive. Right. But what I did not have was the world. And so I had ideas. I had sketches of it. I knew that's a broad stroke. But a lot of the revision was really defining that. And, um, like, I knew the time period. I knew that they had that technology of the 1920s. And, you know, and then I had to figure out the magical system because I had just a very vague notion of that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one day I sat down and I I wrote the history of, of 500 years of war and, you know, each battle and all of that stuff. Um, so that the world building, you know, it takes a long time for me just to think through everything, you know, try to give some thought to the economics, the religion, the transportation, all of that stuff, and kind of create a series Bible that I can refer to for the future. Yeah, I mean, it would seem like, well, no, it is. I was gonna, not going to, I'm not going to even mince words. It, it's essential to any multi-volume, you know, if you have a multi-volume uh, series that you want to put together and you're talking about a fairly extensive world because uh, you can't tell a, a story in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, building that world, world building is, is a very important thing. And it's not, it's certainly not an intuitive process. You know, you can mm-hmm. go, oh, man, it would be great. Okay, so for steampunk, there's no electricity. You know, and and I was at a I was at a conference last week, and somebody said, "Well, I was writing this thing, and then all of a sudden I realized that I had somebody walk in the room and flip the light switch." <laughs> you know, well, I mean, yeah, you you can't have. I mean, it has to be consistent, and and a lot of people don't even realize that magic has to be consistent as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be a consistent basis for magic. Um, there has to be some structure because, you know, what if in, in, in the last act all of a sudden you pull this magical attribute out of your butt that didn't show up anyplace else in the in the book, people feel cheated, you know, because they feel right. like someone manipulated them and they just made it, uh, just made it, you know, it, they, it, was, it cheapens the, the process. So uh, now, now that you've got this world built, um, you're probably going to add to it with every single volume because you're you're going to be covering different aspects of other people's lives, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I have, um, so there's other countries in this world that, you know, I have thought about them and, and how they interact. Um, you know, I want to do something like, there's four books in the series, but I, you know, I want to do some short stories that explore other parts of the world that, you know, aren't necessarily relevant to the series but are still... You know, because I have such, I've, I've been building this world for, you know, two years or whatever. And there's a lot that's, that's in it that you don't see, you know. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's ongoing, yeah. Um, what was the hardest part about putting together this first book for you? What was, what was the most troublesome aspect of getting this first book published? For me, um, the choices. Like when you're writing a novel and you're sitting in front of a blank page and you know the beginning and you know the end, and there's so many, there's infinite possibilities 
for mm-hmm. for the middle. Like I did, I did. I'm I sort of you know I'm halfway plotting, halfway pantsing. You know I know where I want to go, but I felt that at a certain point there were just so many choices, and I had to narrow it down, and I had to figure out what's best for the story, and and really go into the theme, and what am I trying to say with this? Because it was difficult to narrow things down. I would go in different directions and, and write things and try to then bring it back together. Um, right. But the actual craft of, of, of the story and completing it, that was the hardest part. Um, you know, publishing is a whole nother, a whole nother set of challenges. Well, I, I, call the yeah, I call it the 80-20 rule that a lot, mm-hmm. of public, or a lot of self-published people don't realize that 80% of what you do is about the business of doing business. And mm-hmm. the 20% actually ends up being the creative part. Because, you know, what the, the creative part, writing, especially for writing, it's, it, unless you're doing a collaborative story or something like that, it's a singular pursuit. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to the point where you want to market, where you want to spread it out, where you want to try to get people to find it, that's, that's a bigger full-time job than just the writing. Writing is one full-time job, or at least a part-time job. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the marketing is huge. And, and for you, when you got the book written and you got to the point where you were, you know, it was done, you're, you got it on Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how did you decide you were going to, to market the book and, and get the word out? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the hardest part, absolutely. And I don't want it to take up 80% of my time, but I haven't really calculated it, and I'm afraid that it might be. <laughs> but um, it, it's difficult. There, You know, there is some of the conventional wisdom in sort of the indie publishing community is just like, just write the next book. The best marketing you can do is the next book. And, um, you know, because with one book out, it, you don't want to spend a lot of money on ads when if you had more books, then the ads would be doing double duty. But at the same time, right. I do want people to, to be able to discover it. So I haven't done a lot of marketing. Um, I'm, I'm in KDP Select, so I will be using the, uh, the, the Kindle Countdown deal at the end of March um, and at some point you know, to put it on sale and, and run some ads that way. And... Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a couple of, of promotional things that I'm going to do that I have my eye on, but I'm not spending a huge amount of time on that because it is a four-book series, and there's certain things that I know I'm not going to be able to do until sometime next year when the fourth book comes out, you know. Right. Did you? Uh, I, it's hard for me to tell just looking at this cover of the book. Did you put anything on the front of the book that said this is volume one of a four-book series? It is. Um, it says Earthsinger Chronicles Book One. It's hard to see it small at, at the smaller size, but um, it does yeah. say Book One on the front. <clears throat> I, I I ran into that problem. Um, I I started a trilogy, and at the very beginning, at the on the on the title on the cover, it says Volume One of the Dark Side Trilogy, and my my tribu- my trial for that is, you know, I had I had several of the, the big ones. I had HarperCollins, Tor, and Penguin look at it. Mm-hmm. And I even had Warner Brothers look at it for maybe optioning for a movie. But when you when you tell everybody right away that, oh, no, this is the first volume of three, uh, you know, they, they want to see how you're going to prosecute the whole trilogy. Mm-hmm. 
and before they 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 decide, well, you're worthy, we want to pick you up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because in in my case, you know, they may think, you know, mine has to do with uh, a bunch of, a colony of um, African Americans secretly living on the back of the side of the moon mm-hmm. for the last fifty years. So what if in the third book, you know, I've said this before, I have these folks come back to Earth and kill all the white people in America. <laughs> I'm sure Harper Collins would consider that a bad investment had they optioned <laughs> me or picked me up, you know, um, okay. and. and their their editor would have done everything possible to dissuade me. So, you know, having done that, now I have to wait. You know, third one's going to come out, and then we'll see. You know, these people will weigh me. We'll will find out if I'm worthy. You know, they'll they'll dine to talk to me, things like that. And and in large part, I think that my mentality was very very similar to yours, in just saying screw it, I'm going to do this because not only do I get it out there. But I, I I managed to maintain a certain amount of control that mm-hmm. I may not have if you know Harper Collins comes to me and says, oh yeah, we've assigned you John Doe or you know Jane Smith or whatever, and she's going to be your editor. And mm-hmm. essentially, you know, everything I've heard is editors basically, you know, they don't write themselves, but they kind of want to pee on your book to make it partly theirs, mm-hmm. and and nobody wants to see their creative creativity shortstopped by someone else. Right. So I mean. What what other elements? I mean, what was the big deal about you going and self-publishing? What was the main impetus for you deciding to do that? Just not wanting to go through the effort of having to to send out you know a hundred free books to people who may not even read them. Or, I mean, what, what was it the uphill climb? Um, let us know because you know there's a whole lot of people who listen to this show who write. You know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um... For me, self-publishing, I've always done things myself, like the whole DIY mentality, you know, this, this, the documentary that we made. No one in, in the film world says, oh, you, you, know, you can't make that film yourself. You have to wait for Miramax to you know, say it's right. okay. But when, right. you're making, when you're writing books, there's, there's you know, been a backlash against self-publishing because it must not be that good if you're putting it out yourself. And I, I never felt like, I needed that sort of validation. I mean, there are people who their dream is to be published by a big publisher and to see their book in Barnes and Noble. And I don't take anything away from them, but that wasn't me. Um, mm-hmm. I I've always kind of just done the DIY thing artistically, and I was really interested in having that control and having um, being able to choose my cover and my cover designer. You know, when you're mm-hmm. published by a major publisher, you don't have any say in that usually. And mm-hmm. um, I was concerned about working with an editor. And like you said, you know, is that person just going to want their voice, you know? And there's no guarantee no matter whether you hire the editor yourself or you assign one by a publishing mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of when I hire them myself, I have no... Um, you know, I'm not under any uh, responsibility to take everything that they say because. Well, you're the final. You're the final arbiter yes, of, the final of your arbiter. own destiny. Yeah. Right. Um, and and you know how else I can tell that you were self-published just by looking at the at the front of your book, the the, the face page of your book. Mm-hmm. You, your name is not bigger than the title. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm serious. Go to Barnes and Noble. Go to Barnes and Noble. Walk down the aisle and look at all of the covers. Look at whatever covers you want to look at. Um, and you will find that probably more often than not, about 85% of the time, you're going to see that the author's name is bigger than the title of the book because publishers sell by author. 
They don't mm-hmm. sell by title. They sell by author. And so, you know, they want to put uh, Jackie Collins' name real, you know, really big or, or Tom Clancy, and then you know it's, you know, okay, this is a cover I haven't seen, so this is a new one, so I, I should grab this one. And that's how, that's how the major publishers publish a book. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's refreshing to see for you, you, you know, here you, you decided, you know, the title, Song of Blood and Stone, is, is important because that's the title of the book. And especially, I think, for a series, you know, you're going to get a lot of pushback from a publisher. But, mm-hmm. again, like you said, you're going to be the self-determinant for your own, um, your own enterprise. Hang on a second. You're listening to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Program, the service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com uh, website, where there are wonderful creatives there, um, not quite 24-7 because we all have to get some sleep, but we have people there from all around the world, you know, uh, Africa, uh, ran into a guy from Ireland. A guy from Ireland stopped in there one time. So uh, check, check out the website. This is the March 6th edition, and we're talking to Leslie Penelope about her book, Song of Blood and Stone, her, her film career, as a professional 48-hour film project uh, contestant and a woman who is driven, who is smart, and who is determined to have control over her own life. Now, there. Was that a good enough representation of who you are? Yes. I'm going to have to put that on my business card. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see, I tried uh, the most fun you can have with your clothes on, but people read that wrong. So ah. you, have to be very, you have to be very careful about what tagline you put on your business cards. You do. Um since we're in the second hour here, let's talk a little bit about, okay, we know that you've got a four-book series. Actually, do you have synopses for the, all four books, or do you have them kind of sitting in your head so you know where everything's going? I have uh, a text file with uh, a paragraph or two about each book. So right. a lot of it's in my head. Uh, the broad strokes are written out for the whole series. And and so... Um, are your collaborative helpers, you know, are they going to, you know, you're still going to use the same process to get to the publishing point? Or do you think that now, now that you've got the first one out, you know what the process is like, um, you'll, you'll be able to better handle it alone? Um, what's your thinking on, I mean, is having the first one out going to change your process at all? I, I plan to go through a very similar process. I mean, hopefully just more streamlined. But I, I found the editors that I used invaluable. I think that I really enjoyed being edited, and they were pointing out things that it's hard as the author when you're so close to it to see. You try to get distance from it, but it's, it's impossible to really get distance. So you do need outside eyes on it. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, absolutely. My critique partners are going to get the first shot. And... Um, I've already scheduled my developmental editor for a book two. So at least the first few, I mean, I'm never going to, to, to not have it beta read and not have it um, looked at by, you know, the people that I trust to give me good feedback. I think that's just a really important part of the process. Mm-hmm. And, and then, oh, go mm-hmm. ahead. No, just also because um, I want to use the same people for all four books, so there's some continuity too. Yeah, that's I get. Yeah, that's probably very important. Um, so the first one came out to be how many thousand words? Did you say ninety thousand, eighty thousand? It's ninety thousand words. Yeah. Ninety thousand words, and so how long do you figure you'll be? You know, it's going to take you to do 
a 90,000 word volume? That is what um, I'm, I'm trying to, or I'm planning on having book two out at the end of the summer, or early fall. So oh, I'm working okay. through the draft now, and I want to, you know, the series needs to end next year because I have all kinds of other ideas. Um, so I write fairly fast, first draft, mm-hmm. but fast and dirty, and then I spend a lot of time refining, revising, and cleaning things up. Yeah, well, I mean, that's 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 prodigious. That's still really good. Um, and And it sounds like you've got your process down, so it's not like the distractions of the day will keep you. Oh, you know, I haven't I haven't written anything for about a week now because uh, the the cherry <laughs> trees were blooming, or you know, whatever the excuse is in Maryland. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, well, no, I went to Ocean City, Maryland, and I found the boardwalk there when I was visiting. I was visiting the bicentennial, mm-hmm. but I got out of the area because I didn't know if all hell was going to break loose in the capital because of the bicentennial or not. Oh. Um, so tell us a little bit about your life there. You you mentioned that you you work from home during the mm-hmm. day. Right. Um, is, is, do you mind telling us what you do? I am a website developer and multimedia consultant. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about your, your business because um, I, I would think that certain things that you learn about multimedia development and website design they play well in writing because what, what you manage to do is if you have an understanding of how people think and how people reason and how people make their decisions, I think you're a better writer um, because you understand the human condition on a, on a not usual level, you know, almost on a subconscious level for, mm-hmm. for them, not for you. Um, how, how, how has that worked for you? And, and what drew you to it? I mean, is it the whole nerd thing that you talked about early on in life? Well, no, I mean, come on, look how many, look how many, you know, people in these kinds of professions end up writers. You know, look at how many people from the Navy, from the armed forces, you know, they end up as writers because they have an understanding of, you know, I don't want to say nerd space because too many people think of it as negative, but a lot of people come from those walks of life. I mean, um, first of all, what drew you to doing this kind of work? And mm-hmm. does it help you? In, it does help you in your writing. I I always kind of was the one in the family who dealt with the computer, you know, right. from being a child. And uh-huh. um, I did. I took computer programming classes in high school. I ended up minoring in, in computer science um, instead of majoring in, in college. And for me, uh, when I got to and then I went on to get a master's in multimedia because mm-hmm. having a background in film and computer science, it was like a natural fit. It's oh, absolutely. It's visual. Yeah, the the web came around, and I was right at the right age when you know, it started to kind of I don't think get on the ground floor, but I mean it was it was part of um, everything, you know. Right. So it, it made a lot of sense with my interest to get into multimedia. Mhm. Mhm. And and do oh go ahead. That was it. Go on. Um and and does it help you with your writing? You know, with the conceptual work that you have to do for world building or anything like that, or is there not really much spillover at all? I haven't really thought about whether it helps as a writer. I think that troubleshooting skills in general, like if you you know if you're a programmer and you get stuck inside of some code. 
um, there are correlations, I think. Um, and also video editing. I th that part of it really I correlate more so than even the multimedia. Um, For linear and nonlinear storytelling? Well, yeah, just putting a story together. Um, you know, linear editing, I, I did actually do some of that on a, when I was in college. It was the end of cutting film with razors. Um, and, but, but, you know, if you're editing a video, you're, you're, you're picking, you're putting together the scenes, you're telling the story visually, even if it's, even if you're just the editor and you didn't write or direct or, any, or do anything else, just the act sure. of putting it together in a way that makes sense is, is creating a story. It's telling a story mm -hmm. visually. And so I think that, that those skills uh, relate a lot to the writing probably more so than the multimedia and the, and the programming. Yeah, but, but they're complementary skills. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Somebody wants to know um, where, where the idea of Earthsong came from. Earthsong is the magic system in my book, in Song of Blood and Stone. And it's right. basically um, a natural sort of energy-based magic. Earthsong is the combined energy of the earth, of the earth, and if you are an earth singer, you you tap into that, and then you can manipulate that. And okay. the idea, I, I I've always been interested in sort of the idea of, of like the metaphysical and um, and manipulating energy in a sort of way, and, and stuff that is I don't know I don't want to say mind over matter, but um, yeah, that 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 idea of uh, kind of connecting to a universal supply, mm -hmm. a universal mm -hmm. power that that is behind everything. Um, Zero point energy. It, mm -hmm. Yeah. And the actual the actual terminology. Um, I I knew somebody who was kind of into very I want to say the word I can think of right now was woo woo sort of stuff. And he once told me that, you know, the earth vibrated at C-sharp or something like that. There was a note that the, earth, that the earth vibrated at. And that kind of stuck with me. I didn't know, didn't know exactly what that meant, but um, mm -hmm. I, I kind of took that idea and was like, oh, well, there's this energy that, you know, everything is energy. Matter, you know, you go down to, to the quantum level, it's just vibrating. It's just energy. There isn't really matter. And um, what if that is that power, you can tap into this energy that creates everything and then manipulate it. And so that's where Earth Song came from. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's an, an underlying basis for your world building in the first place. And it's a way of, of maintaining the consistency across all of your stories with, with a, uh, a universal constant, you know, your magical universal constant. Mm -hmm. I never heard of the Earth vibrating at middle C. <laughs> well, no, I've I mean, looked it know, up since then. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there there are places on Earth where they hear they hear um, tones, or they'll hear uh, you know, there's neighborhoods where you actually can hear. I mean, I've, I picked it up on YouTube. I've learned too much from YouTube. One thing is never <laughs> drive in Russia. And, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Of the, I, you know, they got like hundreds of crap. Well, never mind. The other is never date a woman who has a stripper pole in her living room or bedroom. But that's mm -hmm. an aside. But but I mean, there 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 are 
I mean, the plausibility of the fact that the Earth, you know, has energy, that we have zero-point energy in the universe where energy could be leaking through or tapped into from the, the spaces, you know, in interdimensional space, things like that. These are, these are memes that are comfortable enough that other people can pick up on them without have, you having to do a lot of exposition. And let's be honest, <clears throat> there, there's, a ma- there's some manner of plausibility. I mean, how many people talk about, you know, the fact that, oh, I've seen ghosts, or, oh, when somebody died, they came to me before, you know, just as they were dying. Or, you know, there, there are a lot of components to um, human existence mm-hmm. that, that are not scientifically provable, but they make for very, very plausible storylines. So, I mean, yeah. be, being able to tap into that gives you a, a pretty good audience because if you do it well, they're going to be familiar enough and they're going to like the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll see, somebody's asking for all of the, you know. <laughs> okay, somebody wants to talk about, they go, though the book was a romance, uh, Jasmine didn't want to wait uh, around for the prince to save her. Um, could you talk a little bit about your personal thoughts on feminism? Feminism, wow, it's kind of, it can be loaded. Um, just in terms of black women, I feel like have a very complicated relationship with feminism. But in, in terms of the actual book and, uh, you know, not waiting around for someone to, to be saved by somebody, I think that I've always been attracted to, to strong female characters. I've sure. always wanted to write strong female characters. And that, it kind of becomes a cliche. Okay, what is a strong female character? But um, just someone that I, a character that I would admire and want to stay inside of a book with for 90,000 words, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and, yeah. And at, at, at its base, it's just good storytelling. You know, if you create a good three-dimensional character who's interesting, and, mm-hmm. and who is driven by either a set of values or a quest, um, you know, them navigating life's foibles can become very, very interesting if it's told well. Right. Um, as, as far as the relationship between feminism and black, uh, black women, you're, you're right. That is very, that is, that's, uh, that's, that's deep. I mean, and it's not something that you, you can't, well, no, I mean, you know, it's not something you casually talk about you know, when you only have like 45 minutes left in a radio show, but, you know, there, there are actually scholars out there who believe that the women's movement in the 70s was very instrumental in high unemployment and, and difficulties with black men finding jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's something that's been studied. Mm-hmm. And and to try to prove something that's been studied in your, you know, like if you have a bone to pick in your book, sometimes that just detracts from a very, very good story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds to me like you picked your characters based on a very, very good story first and then built the world around them. Would Would that be fair to say for the first book? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I was, you know, the, the adage, you know, write the stories you want to read. I was writing characters that I, I wanted to read about and yeah. um, that were interesting to me. And, and let's talk about, you know, your, your perspective on race and what you write. You know, it, it, sometimes it can be very complicated. Sometimes it's just straight, a straightforward matter of, you know, I write about people I know or write about, about people that I know about. Um, uh, what, what role does race play in what you write? 
race, I mean, this story, it's about essentially a girl who is biracial, um, and it's not, it's a fantasy world, so it's, I'm trying not to bring our particular baggage into it, but just the idea of, of feeling isolated, feeling like you don't belong, feeling um, mm-hmm. like you don't mm-hmm. identify 100% with either side. Um, those were the things I was really exploring. And in the background of, you know, mutual prejudice and, um, you know, kind of animosity between two groups based on a history. I mean, all of that. That's, like you said, we can talk about, you can use fantasy and science fiction to talk about these things and as a lens with which to to view them. So, mm-hmm. and also I kind of, I make a, I don't know if it's a commitment, but I don't ever see myself not writing about characters of color or characters who have been marginalized based on race. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of, um, whether your people are traditionally published or indie published, I, I just see a lot of writers for marketability reasons, which, you know, is their choice, obviously, but I see a lot of, like, black writers with white people on the cover exclusively, and I knew that I didn't want to do that. And, mm-hmm. and those are some of the stories that come to me to tell. You know, I'm telling stories about my experience and people that I know and just my thoughts on these experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, so it is. It's important to me as an artist to, to not shy away from those things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was I thought about the cover a lot, you know, knowing that I was going to indie publish and knowing that, okay, well, if the big publishers are whitewashing their covers, it must be because they don't think that covers of black people on themselves. So you know, do I get caught up in that because I'm, you know, I'm an independent person and I have to market it myself? And, you know, all these thoughts kind of went through my mind. But every time I would see, you know, come across an author website, I'm like, oh, they're a black author. Let me check them out wait, all of their books have only white people on the cover. What is up with that? It would just, just hurt my heart so much that um, I knew, you know, I have to put my characters on the cover. My characters look the sure. way they look. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, just as playing devil's advocate, I mean, when you when you think about the total readership out there, you know, black folks make up uh, oh, 11%. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 12%, 12, right. 11, 12, 13% of the population and and you do want to be successful from a business perspective and right. and there is nothing to say that a black author has to write a black themed story. I mean there are there are techno thrillers, there are dramas, there are all kinds of stories out there. Science fiction, fantasy, horror and you and and just because you're black doesn't mean you have to be pigeonholed into writing only black themed work. Mm-hmm. Um and so so it could be a marketing thing, it could be something else, but but you you deliberately cho- chose because of the reasons that you just stated, which I think are are, are very noble. And um, let's just say that they're not they're not the easiest uh, way to go. I mean, right. We, right. we we all know that people still choose the books that they read unless they've read a great review and they go, oh, I've got to read that. People still choose books the way you know they do judge a book by its cover. Absolutely. So, Absolutely, so, you know, and I'm not really, I'm really not trying to down people because I, I understand. Oh no, 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 I understand. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, and I've gotten, I've gotten really good feedback. Like people saying, "Oh my gosh, there's a woman of color on the cover," and you know, these are black people and white people based on social media pictures, you know. So, right. um, 
and I, you know, I knew it was a risk, and I know that, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's not the easiest thing to do, and I had to kind of decide, all right, what is, what is this? What am I going to do? What is my career going to be? Or, you know, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to whitewash my own cover. You know, now, sure. I could obviously not have anybody on the cover. I mean, there's different choices and different stories will have different needs and everything else. But just when I go to a bookstore and I see a black woman on the cover, I know the feeling I have in my heart and how, how good I feel and how excited I get. Um, and I just wanted to have, have that, give that experience to someone else. You know. Mhm. Mhm. And and even though it's been out only a short amount of time, uh, do you have any handle on the demographics of your readers yet, or or is it way too early? It's pretty early. Um, from the also box on Amazon, it looks like there's a lot of other, um, not even fantasy. A lot of the also box look like there's sort of more romance, a lot of interracial romance, and um, things like that. I do know, you know, on Goodreads, from what I can tell, you can kind of look at people who've reviewed it and see what other books they like. Um, it's the, the people there seem a lot more mixed. Um, it is a new adult fantasy romance, so getting sort of older YA readers. But I, I do see a mix from what I can tell mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. far. And, and um, you know, having written it, you you did you you focused on writing it as a young adult a novel. It's not young adult. It's it's more new adult. The characters are nineteen and twenty one, I believe. Okay, um, and and so what uh, what kinds of things did you do to focus on kind of that that age group in the writing or the marketing? Yeah. No, in the writing. I mean, did you deliberately set out with that in mind, or or did it just end up that way? I think when the characters sort of came into my head, they were at the cusp of figuring out who they were. Like, through the course of the book, you know, the the heroine and and the hero go through almost coming-of-age type changes when you're becoming an adult and really understanding what that means. And that time period is really interesting to me. Um, like I said before, I was writing a lot of YA before, and now I'm writing a lot of new adult because um, that it's that that time period where you can deal with kind of adult issues, but your the scenes that I work with it, they just seem to to kind of go hand in hand with leaving teenageness and becoming an adult, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I mean that just points up to the fact that you know at least you're aware of it and you're a little bit deliberative about how you write the story because because it fits right in there for you, correct? Right, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, well, no, I mean, there, there are so many, people have no idea that when you set out to write a book, some people will write a linear story and they just tell that story and that's that. But if you, if you have a focus the way you do, um, you, you've obviously put time and energy into thinking about exactly how to present your world to other people. So, I mean, I, I see that as a deliberate, a deliberative good thing. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a lot of people don't – you're very focused. You're very focused on what you do, and you pay a lot of attention about the details around what you do so mm-hmm. that you yield exactly the result that you want to have. 
And that's, I think that's a good lesson, that a good takeaway that people who listen to this should think about. If you're a writer, if you're a content creator, if you write a comic book, blah, 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 whatever you do, um, you're, you're, you have to take into account your target audience and, and what, what you do, how that affects your target audience, how your target audience is going to um, perceive your work. Um, so, so this is a very deliberate process for you, and and you go about it in a very regimented way. Um, and also, um, though, you know, once you put it out there, you kind of have to then let go. Like I know I've done the best I can do to to be deliberate, to to say what I want to say, but I've had reviews that you know make me question if they read the same book that I wrote. You know, they, the people are will pull something completely different out of it and it's their experience of, of reading the work will be different and, and after it's out there for public consumption you have to let them have it you kind of have to let go of that tight control that you have during the creation process because people will interpret it differently because everybody's different yeah. and I have well, seen and, just, yeah. and their perspective is going to be different too I mean you know they're going to be people who have completely different lives that lives that you than you had Mm-hmm. And they're going to come at it from another way. I had one guy review my my first book, and he said, "Oh, I can't get into it because uh, it seems more like a Saturday Night Live sketch to me." You know? <laughs> and, well, no. And, and and at first I was mad because I'm like, "Motherfucker!" You know? Well, anyway, right. it was like you don't you have no idea why I wrote it, what's in it, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, he he you know again his perspective was different. He was a white guy who said to himself, "I can't for the life of me imagine why." Um, a uh, a black person would be so disenchanted with living on Earth that he would abandon everything and go live on the moon in isolation with just his own people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. So I'm saying to myself, well, gee, every black person I talked to said, well, if I could take my family, I'd go in a heartbeat. Right. You know, that's that's yeah. the only consideration that they have because, you know, obviously different people see the American experience in this country or the experience in this country from different perspectives. So, right. yeah, you're going to get different people look at your work and get different things out of it. And and you're right about letting go. At, at, at some point, an author has to, and they have to, for even for self-preservation, say, hey, this is the story I told, this is the story I put out there, and, you know, you can't get mad at people for saying, well, I didn't get it mm-hmm. or... I didn't like it. Um, right. So, I mean, everything about you is, is so, it's, um, I don't want to use the word mature, but I want to, I want to say that it's well considered because you, you have gone about this in, in probably the most methodical way that I've seen anybody approach writing and publishing their work. And, um, it's you know it's it's refreshing to run into somebody like you. No, it really is. Well, thank you. Um, I I do tend to to obsess over the details, um, over all, all of the details, and that was another reason to solve problems. No, get I knew out. This about really, <laughs> really, you you obsess on the details. I never would have gotten. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, with you being that way, how do uh, how are do people around you, family, friends, you know, your your writing team, how how do they deal with you? How do they like dealing with you? I mean, what's their experience like? Um, you can tell us 
if you're a tyrant <laughs> and that you're, you know, completely nuts about the process, if you if you want, nobody here is going to tell anybody else that you said that. Sure, sure. Well, I know that I I probably drive them crazy. Um, one of my best friends is my critique partner, <laughs> and um, she's so sweet, and she deals with me when I and talks me off the ledge all the time. Like Good. I would not yeah. be able to do this, you know, without that. And and my husband's also very good about that, talking me down off of the ledge and just kind of putting things back into perspective. Because I mean, I won't have like a full out panic attack, but I will, I will just be like, I I spend hours on things. Like, I'm not even going to bore you with the details. I I'm I I've always been anal. I've been kind of an anal person. Like as a child, I had a schedule that would like. 6.35, wake up, 6.38, get in the shower, you know, 6.47, <laughs> eat breakfast, that level. And, and I forcibly loosened up over time. So I'm so far away from that now in a lot of ways. But, right. um, but yeah, I'm very fortunate to have people around me that, uh, that deal with me and that are, you know, know how to uh, calm me down and, and put, pers- put things back in perspective. And, um, yeah. Uh, so you've got your process. Everybody knows your process. And every now and then somebody has to bring you back to uh, to to kind of center you mm-hmm. rather than let you go, okay, well, that's not bad. I mean, the thing about being creative is there, if you're a good creative, well, I think you, you said this at the beginning, you know, at if you're a good creative and you're you're diligent about your product and and you really care, there's going to be you know that 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 kind of control freak streak, you know. I, right. I and um, in in most ways, if you're not completely crazy, that's a good thing because you know in the final analysis, you're the one responsible for quality control. Mm-hmm. And and if you're not going to step up and grab hold of that. Um, you're liable to have a lesser product, so um, all of that is good. So let's let's talk about in the future. You've got you've got the one book out. You've got probably like the synopses of the next three books done. Where do you think you're going to be? Maybe like five years from now. You know, you'll have that series out. You mentioned that you have some notes on a, on another series that you would like to do. Is that true? I'm actually, I have a, a totally another novella, unrelated novella that I'm probably putting out in May. It's already mm-hmm. written. Um, it was something that I wrote, again, really quickly and revised in between, you know, in the times when uh, Song of Blood and Stone was with someone else. So I had some time. Okay. So uh, there's that coming out. I'm, I'm co-writing something, a paranormal romance series with um, my critique partner, Inez Johnson. And later that later this year, hopefully that will be coming out. There are a lot of irons in the fire. Um, right. In five years, I I hope to have lots and lots of books out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, you just mentioned the collaborative part. How is how are you with the collaborative process? Because a lot of people are not able to do that. Um, how's that working out for you? I think actually it's really good for me because she is um, a lot looser. So it's a good balance. So, you know, I admit I am the holdup most of the time because I'm like, okay, now we have to give it one more pass. You know, we have to look at it one more time. We have to get someone else to read it and give us feedback one more time. Um, but I love 
talking through a story with people, whether I'm collaborating, you know, in a co-writing venture or just on my story. I find it really helpful to, to talk things out. And um, so the collaborative process helps me step back, you know, look at what someone else is bringing to the table and um, negotiate those things in the story and kind of just let go a little bit and let it, and let it flow from when I'm just working on my own thing. And so obviously you can kind of subvert the, um, you call it anal, I call it, uh, what did I call it? Um, not anal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, control, the control freak. Control you can freak. kind of suppress the control freak part of you enough so that you can collaborate and somebody just doesn't go, you know, this woman is whack. I'm not doing right. this ever again. Okay. I have to work with a patient person who understands me, but and also is going to be like, okay, you know, calm down. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you, you mentioned you have, um, you have pets, right? I do. The, I have a dog and, and a cat. And the and the cat is uh, is the one that's um, most disruptive. Yeah, he rules. He rules the house. He's he's a pretty uh, mean uh, cat. I, I love my cat, but he's he's a pretty mean little guy. <laughs> Oh, you know what? I've got I got a question on my own. Um, my, and and the question is, when you create characters, are they analogs of people you know, or are you able to create, you know, unique characters out of whole cloth? Most of my characters, they're not direct analogs. I will I will have pieces of people I know in sure, some of them. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I they're really their own people. They they mm. come. To, you know, they come into my brain as their own selves, and and usually when I um, when, when I do see people pieces of people that I know, I kind of put them in there. Um, right. Yeah. And and do you think this is born of the fact that you know you started your your very structured writing habits at at a young age? I mean, is is this born out of discipline? Um, being able to do this, so what what do you think fuels that kind of creativity in you? It might be. It's it's discipline, you know, experience. The more you do it, the better you are. And so right. I have been writing an awfully long time. I mean, I have, you know, boxes of, of things that I've written over the mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and just, yeah, experience and, and discipline. And wanting to take it seriously because I see – because I've been in writing groups and writing workshops with people who have been writing books, you know, for eight, ten years, and I, I understand that. I spent, you know, two years working on one book that I never finished yet, and so right. I can sympathize. And there was such a turning point when I was like, I, I, wanted, I wanted to do this for real. I want to finish things and get people to read them. And so that turning point happened, and I was like, I want to be a professional. I need to write every day or, you know, five times a week at least. I need to treat sure. this like a job. And, um, and so once I got that mindset, then all of the discipline and all the experience kicked in and just pushed me forward. And, and even now, are you, um, do you write every day these days? I, I write, I try to. Um, not every day because sometimes work takes over and right. you know, I'm on the computer all day. But especially when, I'm, when I, I set deadlines for myself, so I do try to write every day. And I usually succeed at least five out of seven days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and is this, you know, um, structured writing for your products? Do you do any practice writing? <clears throat> do you, you know, um, 
are you at the point now where you feel that you can concentrate strictly on the things that you want to produce, or do you think? I mean, I I, I still I mean, obviously for me, I'm a work in progress, and I want every book to be better than the last book. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. I, I don't always know how to achieve that, but I do know that by keeping writing, and 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 trying to write things that are outside my wheelhouse. It, it will eventually make me a better writer. And I still read books on writing novels too, you know, mm-hmm. like John Gardner and, and people like that. Um, what do you what do you do in the maintenance of and the growth of your, your craft? In between um projects, so like in the spaces where I've sent the book to beta readers and I haven't I'm not working on anything with a, a strict deadline, I do kind of do free writing. There's a mm-hmm. there's a website called 750words.com that um, it used to be free now that you have to pay but I um, I used that for many years kind of in those in between times when um, I just wanted to play around or had an idea in my head so I would just write 750 words of it and the site mm-hmm. saves it and, and tells you you know like it does statistics and stuff mm-hmm. like that um, and so I have either it's flash fiction or just a brief scene or a piece of the scene. And um, from those things, sometimes comes other things that I figure I want to work on. Like I had this idea, I, I spent 20 minutes writing you know, about a thousand words, and then um, I, I put it away. And a few weeks or months later, I can come back to it and be like, I want to expand that, and that becomes a story. So right. that kind of thing is really helpful. <laughs> it, it loosens me up from okay, this four book series that I'm writing. You know, I do like to to branch out. I have lots of other ideas and things that I want to write about. So those little chunks help me out a lot. Yeah. Did you did you ever see the movie Finding Forrester with Sean yeah. Connery? And, uh, and, and you know, I look, I watched that kind of early on when I started writing. And I, you know, it was, it was a revelation to me that you could sit down and write and it doesn't have to be in the service of a book or mm-hmm. anything specific. But what it does is it it massages and exercises your imagination to to make the process freer for you. And and I was mm-hmm. really surprised that it that it really does work. Um, so now um, now you know if I sit down and write, um, I still can't let go of the fact that it has to be for something. But you know I'll start out with a premise and maybe even a good ending. That's how I write. I write backwards. I come up with mm-hmm. a good ending for a book or a script, and then I'll write up to get to that ending. So, I mean, those kind of exercises and seeing how other people do their process has been very helpful to me. Um, was was the um, your writer's group kind of like that same kind of resource for you, seeing how other people handle the process, and, and did it help you refine yours? I think that... Um the writer's group, not necessarily other people's processes, although I'm fascinated by other people's processes and, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying different things, like you said, reading books about writing, reading blogs about writing, and, and finding other things to incorporate and in, in ways to, to, to do things better, and knowing other writers and, and sort of fellowshipping with them is really important, important to that. Um, like I joined, once we moved back to Maryland, I joined the Maryland Romance Writers, and it, we meet every month. And that has actually been extremely helpful as a, as a, you know, as a writing group because you're around published authors that are really serious about their craft as well. 
And um, so you do get to talk to people and to to learn about how they do things, how they plot, um, and, and yeah, making sure that you're always open to to learning about people's processes and seeing where you can tweak your own. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Now, how did you find this group? I mean, you're in Baltimore, which is you know it right in that area is pretty po- you know a, a dense population, but I mean. How did, how did you locate this one group? Because it sounds like they were exactly what you needed in an almost magical way. You know? <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. how did you find them, though? Um, I was looking because, I, you know, I, when I moved, I lost my group of people that I'd been with for years. And I was right. looking for something like that. I did a, a Google search, um, and I had heard of, you know, Romance Writers of America is a national organization. And I, I was reading a lot of romance in addition to other things. And I wasn't sure if I was writing, you know, I'm not writing straight ahead romance, but I went to one of the meetings and I just found it so helpful to be in a room with all these other people who are serious. You know, they are mm-hmm. either traditionally published or independently published and it was just inspiring. And the most inspiring thing about that meeting is that the monthly meetings, every meeting, uh, you know, you go around and they ask the question, have you submitted to an agent this month? Have you, you know, been accepted this month? Have you published anything this month? Have you? There are all these questions that people are raising their hands. Yes, I did this. Yes, I, I published this. I got accepted. I got an agent. And you're looking around at these people who are just like you, and they're next to you, and you're like, these women can do it. I can do it too. And that was like right. the final thing that was like that community. So, you know, just to encourage everyone, anyone who's a writer, find that community. And I did. I, I, I did a Google search and found something that was nearby that, um, you know, looked interesting, just dropped in the meeting, didn't know what to expect. And I found a really great group of people that has inspired me. And and what is it, a monthly group? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's that's a word to the wise to other other writers out there. Um, and I also think that the best benefit of being in a, a well-structured group like that is to help you get over get over the sensitivities of being a creative. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the you know the to to get you used to listening to constructive criticism, to get you listening to other people's perspectives about what you've done, because that's a tough thing. Because mm-hmm. most people feel that any criticism of their self is some sort of invalidation of their existence, and, it, yeah. and it's just not—it's just not that way at all. You know, yeah, you're going to get some assholes out there who are going to critique you in a mean way just because it's their nature or because they're resentful, or you—you you did a story about you know how they wet the bed and they—they they took it as you were writing about them or what you know whatever the hell their their bone to pick is. But it's not it's not the end of the world and it certainly should not dissuade somebody from flying their craft and, and from somebody trying to do something creative. But it's tough. It's very tough. I mean when I when my my first book went on up on Amazon, I had no idea whether I had written a good story or not. Because mm-hmm. the people around me, my friends, your friends don't want to hurt you. And you know, your right. friends are not gonna you know the first thing your friend is not going to say is, Are you sure you want to publish that? Because of mm-hmm. course they know they, they would crush you emotionally. Mm-hmm. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. And sometimes you have to get out of your circle in order to find the best objective judgment on what it is you've done. And and every creative needs that. You need that. People will go, well, you know, I know I wrote a good story. And I go, well, how do you know you wrote a good story? He says, well, because I just, 
I did because I just wrote it. It came to my head and it was brilliant. And and <laughs> what what do you say to somebody like that? And then it goes up for sale and and nobody, you know three people buy it in the first year and then you know again by having that arrogance instead of seeking good counsel and and mm-hmm. people who know more than you do. Um, you're, and when, you're going to improve. Yeah, go ahead. When, when things go up there, you know, it's strangers. It's people who've never looked you in the eye writing one-star right. reviews, you know. Right. It, and so if you can't take the criticism with someone who actually has to say it to your face or has some sort of interaction with you, and it's going to just naturally be a little kinder in general. You're always going to meet people, you know. But for the most part, I've, I have had very good critique experiences across the board. Um, because, you know, you have to look at somebody and say, try to put this in a constructive way that hopefully is not going to crush their spirit because the people on the Internet don't care about crushing your spirit. They don't know you. They've never seen you. So it's better to have it done, you know, up front by someone who at least has to look you in your eye when they're telling you something. Yeah, and, and, you know, I I will be entirely honest. You know, when I I saw that one-star review pop up about my book, I said, who does he think? And then, you know, I got... At first, I got angry. Fortunately, I was mature enough not to go, oh, you know, well, then I might have done a terrible thing. Right. You know, but but I, I got to the point where I said, okay, so this is one man's perspective. And then now I use that review because it is such a stark reminder of how different people view, you know, the American experience, living live, what living in this country is. So in, in that case, it was instructive and it was a good thing. But... It, you, I'm, I'm not going to BS anybody. It took a little while to get above that instead of being resentful or pissed off or, or anything like that. And fortunately, I've got a, a, an ego as big as all outdoors, so I never have to worry <laughs> about somebody crushing my spirit because they can't possibly be as smart as me or know as <laughs> much as me or, or be as good as me. So that 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 helps me keep uh, keep it even <laughs> That That's helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say, yeah. But, I mean, it's pretty cool talking to you because, you know, first of all, you have, you know, you you have shown people, you have demonstrated to people um, your process. And your process is very focused, it's very businesslike, and it's sane and workable. And as as evidenced by the fact that you have a book published, it's successful. So I think people who listen to this show are going to get a good takeaway about how to plan their plan of attack for getting published. What mm-hmm. is your plan of attack for getting your name out there? What is your plan of attack for finishing the damn book? Yeah. You know, and you know, there are people who don't finish a book. It's it's oh, not yeah. an easy thing. And then finishing a good book even harder. Finishing <laughs> a good book that other people, do, you know, eventually find even harder. Uh finishing a good book that other people find where they're opinions and their reviews touch other people to induce them to buy books even harder. So, you know, that that pyramid that you have to climb in terms of getting your book published and getting some notoriety, the the trip gets steeper and steeper the higher you go. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to be any problem for you because um, being, uh, well, you called it anal, but being, you know, be, being aware of the process and and focusing your efforts on conquering that process, I see that as a good thing. So, I mean, I, I, have, I see nothing but good things ahead for you. 
I want you to stay in touch. I want you to keep uh, keep track of what you do. Um, mm-hmm. Have you thought about? I mean, in your marketing, are you going to go to any kind of these any of these conventions, sci-fi cons, or anything like that? And is that part of your marketing strategy, or 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 not? I I would like to. It hasn't been as of yet because I still feel with one book that maybe it might not be worth it. But I might right. try to go to some of the local ones. I know that in, in Baltimore there's you know, Balticon and there's some other sort of cons in the area. And I just have to kind of evaluate and, and set a budget and everything and try to figure out how I'm going to do that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that if I, it's, cause it's all about getting getting it out there and getting people to know that you exist and that this book exists. And mm-hmm. those could be a good way to do that. Yeah. And, and you know, there really is, you know, I – I don't know if you're going to figure out or if you're going to – your calculation is going to be like mine where you figure out the, if, if 80-20 is about right for you. But the other thing is you have to be very, very careful about your cost benefits because not every possible thing you do is going to be a benefit. You know, some people say, well, I went to this con and, you know, I sold uh, enough books to pay for it. But that's still – yeah. You know, that, that's still kind of a crapshoot. That's kind of that's not a given. It's not an automatic. Right. So the the other part is, you know, that eighty percent of the business of doing business of your time is huge. And uh, again, that's another place where I think people can spend some time with other people who've gone through the process to see what they've done, avoid some of the pitfalls that they have, and maybe you'll find a, some creative ways that people have not maybe utilized so much just by listening to other people. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you you know, you've done a great job at doing that. I mean, not that I'm a final arbiter. If I was all that smart, I wouldn't be here every Friday night. Um, I'd, have, I'd have a life. No, I would. I would have a real life instead of, you know, having to worry about this ankle bracelet. Um, I hope uh, I'm going to pull uh, uh, Jarvis in in a, in a minute or so, but, I mean, I hope you've had a good time here. Is there anything specific, anything that kind of really jumps out at you that you would want to convey to the people who listen to this about the process you went through getting this first book done? Um, it's It was sort of like marriage where people say, oh, it's hard. And you know it's hard, but until you go through it, you don't know how hard it is. Um, it, it, it's hard, uh, but it, it's worth it. If, if you have it in your heart to write and you want people to read your stories, I think the one thing that I really wanted to do was to treat it professionally. It's not, mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be a hobby. I, I do want this to be a career, to move into, you know, if I can, hopefully full-time writing at some point. That's my goal. So I want to do everything as professionally as possible and, and, and put forth the best product I can. And that's sort of what I would stress. And right. I, I thank you for being here Friday night. So I think these are, these are great interviews that you do. And so thank you for not having a life. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's that's is that a backhanded compliment? Uh, I'm going to do the math when we get off the air. Um, uh, in, at, you probably don't know from listening to the shows that um, we once we stop the recording, there's a little bit of time where we have a little chit chat, and some of the people in the chat room may come up with some new new questions and things like that. So hang on after we stop the recording if you have the time. Do you? Yes, I do. Okay, so I'm going to ask. Uh, uh, I'm I'm going to have Jarvis come back on if he's done getting his beer. Um, I'm sorry, he said water, yeah. Uh, because we we want to take a little bit of time to talk about Florida A&M's Literature Fest last week where we had a number of the BSFS writers um, actually were at the Literature Fest as panelists. 
and I, I, I was privileged to be chosen as one of them, um, which for me is it's kind of it was kind of a heady thing because my first my first book was published in 2009, and the two headliners were Tanana Reedu. Um, she's a she does mostly horror. She's well known. She's actually a member of the site. And the other headliner who closed out the whole event was Walter Mosley, who's done 42 books. And uh, his first book, Devil in a Blue Dress, was made into a movie. That had to be a great experience for him to have his book, you know, his very first book made into a movie. And so the the event was organized very, very well. Um, Everybody had their own sessions. And I got lucky. I got to do an extra session because... Uh, Cerise Rennie Murphy, who is also a member of BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, um, her flight, <coughs> excuse me, from Washington D.C. was canceled last Wednesday. Didn't you guys get a storm up in that area? Yeah, we've been we've had bad weather. <laughs> yeah, so she got she got snowed in, and she didn't get there. She didn't get there Thursday. So I had to do. I was lucky enough to have be able to do two sessions. The first session was about an hour and a half, and it was about writing. And um, you know, like you said, exactly like you said, my my talk was about uh, society, culture, and science fiction, and why science fiction and speculative fiction is such a useful vehicle to talk about the world today because it it puts a little safe distance between you know, people and the reality of a situation, especially if you're pointing out a situation that's not so cool mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> or something that, that really bothers people. Um, my next book is about, uh, it's, it's about this, this whole situation where people, you know, white cops are killing unarmed and innocent black people at, at a much, much higher rate than they ever have before. It's like, um, shooting somebody is the first recourse where just a generation ago it was the very last thing you did if you had to resolve you know a serious problem mm-hmm. so i have I have to put that fifteen years in the future <clears throat> so that people don't get pissed at me like they did when uh, n w a did that song um f the police you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because and and if i'm not careful you know there's there's a whole bunch of crazy people out there who would probably go and shoot somebody who they thought was advocating something that they weren't. And even if you put it as a speculative, a speculative um, uh, world, uh, not everybody's going to see that. They're going to go, oh, well, you know, people are going to see through it. I mean, how else mm-hmm. do you write a story without the experiences that you have? Right. So anyway, it was a great event. Uh, Tanana Reeve Dew was there. Her father, Tanana um, Reeve was born on the Florida A&M campus, at the Florida A&M, uh, they've got a hospital on the grounds, and she was born there. Her dad was really big in civil rights, and he was there, older man, a great guy. Uh, actually, he, for some reason, he was fascinated with me being as old as I am and being biracial. Mm-hmm. Because back in the 50s, they didn't have none of that. Of course they did. People just didn't talk about it. Um, but it was a great event. Florida A&M treated us very, very well. Um, from, you know, transportation to and from the hotel to picking us up, dropping us off at the uh, at the um, airport, making sure we got around during the day. 
And it's their, this was their seventh annual one, but this is the biggest one they've ever had, and they're going to have it next year, and they've already invited me back. So I have to keep my nose clean between now and then so that, you know, they go, you know, William, with that police record, we're a little skittish <laughs> about having you back. So, I mean, that's a cool thing to look forward to because, you know, if you're writing black speculative fiction, there are there are learning institutions. Yes, probably almost all of them are HBCUs, um, historically black colleges and universities, but they're using works like that in class because creatives like you and I are writing about issues, you know, one step removed from uh, ripped from the headlines of today, but still discussing the possibilities that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. Do you know? Do you know what I write? What I wrote? Okay, here's yeah. the elevator pitch. Uh, the Dark Side trilogy tells a story of what happens in America when they find out that black folks have been secretly living on the backside of the moon since before Neil Armstrong got there. And so one of the things that I wanted to speculate on was um, a society of African Americans that is able to live, thrive, and survive completely away from any influences of white America. Mm-hmm. And and that's why they're, they've chosen it as, uh, well, they're, they're using the first two books in a class there. Mm, a wow. couple classes there. So that, I mean, seriously, I mean, this was such a surprise. This was the biggest honor I've ever been paid as a creative to have Absolutely. a university invite you in to talk about your your work. And I think every single black uh, black creative who writes about, who writes has the opportunity to maybe go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody, you know, if if you write well, there's going to be a certain amount of people who are going to recognize you for your writing. And I'm not saying that I'm all of that, but I did get the recognition. So I feel very good about it. Um, yeah. Again, you're doing the same thing. You're talking about, you know, a biracial person making their way through culture and society. And we all know, I mean, it's still such a big deal. People still make a big deal, well, obviously, for the president or Tiger mm-hmm. Woods or what have you, because um, there are more and more biracial kids being born every single day. So right. where do they fit in in society? Where do they fit in in culture? Uh, we know that just having a certain color of skin can make you a target for some mm-hmm. pretty ugly things that happen in this country. And and so are we homogenizing our society where there are so many biracial people, so many multi-ethnic people out there that eventually even law enforcement is going to have to cut that nonsense out? Because what do you do when that big of a percentage of people is multi-ethnic, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think those are good things to face up to in writing. And some people... You know, uh, like um, you know, the the queen of black science fiction, and there is no other yet. Um, mm-hmm. Octavia Butler, you know, she mm-hmm. wrote in Kindred about going back in slavery times and having to deal with an entire society that was arrayed against you. Um, right. Sometimes it kind of feels like that today. We're allowed to have jobs, we're allowed to do certain things, but yet, you know, my my darker brethren, because I'm light skinned. Um, you know, if they're if they're driving in certain places, they could be on the phone with me, using their hands free, of course, 
and somebody pulls them over and, uh, you know, they, they got a shiny picture in their wallet and all of a sudden they get shot because somebody says, oh, you know, I thought he had a gun. You know, mm-hmm. And the thing that bothers me is the get-out-of-jail-free card these days for any white cop, or, and, and actually by extension because of uh, these stand-your-ground laws, any white person can kill any person of color today, and all they have to do is say, I feared for my life. Right. That's the get-out-of-jail-free card. I mean, that's all you have to say. When did black folks become so scary? Well, you know, according to Angela Davis in an uh, article she wrote uh, in November, that this is not a new thing. This has been going on for over 400 years. Mm-hmm. So how do we make that stop? That's my science fiction story. How do we mm. make it stop? What what do we do in our culture that when a white cop pulls their gun and points it at a black person, what is going to make them not pull the trigger? Because nowadays, really, there's no consequence. Oh, yeah, they got to do a desk job for 30 days, and they have to fill out extra paperwork. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing, you know, Darren Wilson gets cut loose by everybody. We're seeing these prosecutors. We're seeing these judges. We see these these unbalanced juries giving whites a pass, like, like George Zimmerman. And so what will make whites not pull that trigger? And that's the story of my book. I've come up with the one thing that will make them stop. It's a pretty ugly thing. And so that's why I have to make it a speculative fiction story. It can't be today's fiction. It's got to be, you know, 15 years in the future, uh, basically to keep me alive. Because they're going to be, well, I mean, people are going to, people are going to read that. And they're going to go, oh, William, um, you know, you're, you're advocating such a terrible thing, you know, and, and this is horrible because what you're doing is you're now putting our police officers at risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my answer to that is, wait, we've got like 42 million, 42 million black folks who have been killed with impunity in this country over the last 450 years. And where's, where's the outcry of those families? And these are innocent ones. Where's the outcry for their, those families? Where's the outcry for an entire culture that has been doing that? And there isn't any. So one of the things that I think speculative fiction does very, very well is allow us to talk about these issues. And, yes, it's one step removed from, you know, poking a finger in somebody's eye and going, you know, I hate Whitey or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but we have to talk about how are we going to make this a sane place for our, 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 our kids? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a kid, a dark-skinned kid, Part of their growing up has to be you telling them how to behave around the police so that they don't get shot. Right. I don't know. I don't know of a white family in America where they have that discussion. Oh no. Seriously, you know, yeah. even dumbass hillbillies, they don't have that discussion because probably they're related to the cops. So, the fact that that has to happen in our country, where you, as a parent, have to tell your child, look. It's dangerous out there. You could be taken away from me. I could be taken away from you for no reason whatsoever. So this is what we have to do to try to minimize that. I mean, that that's such a colossal shame. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've talked enough about that. I just want to tell everybody that Florida A&M's, their, uh, their, uh, their literature fest, it's, uh, it's an annual event. Apparently it's going to be, I guess, in February or at least near the end of February. Um, is is a gorgeous event. They treated me ex- 
exceedingly well. They treated us all well and with respect. And that was, uh, it was kind of funny because I have never been called Dr. Hayashi so many times in my entire life. Um, I don't use the moniker, but for them it was a necessary honorific of respect because they they wanted me to also be an example to the students there of what can be achieved by a person and what what people can do. So it was a great event. I shared it with uh, Penelope Flynn, Cerise Rennie Murphy, Valjean Jeffers, um, Milton Davis, uh, Tanana Reeve Du, and Walter Mosley. So I guess that was, I think that was everybody. Yeah. And so I've had, I was, I'm fortunate enough that I've had a connection to every single one of them um, in some way or fashion. I, I interviewed Tanana Reeve Du. Um, I interviewed, uh, no, uh, Penelope interviewed me for this site and some other sites. Uh, oh, I guess the only person I really didn't have a connection with was Cerise Rennie Murphy because when she was interviewed for BSFS for the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, um, I, I actually had a date on a Friday night, um, and I don't feel the least bit guilty about that. So uh, Penelope filled in. She fills in, and she interviewed um, Cerise. And uh, Milton Davis has been around a long time. He does a sword and sorcery, and he's he's really, really well-versed in writing for what we call steampunk instead of steampunk. Same thing, but from a black perspective. Um, Walter Mosley, I have seen and spoken to uh, on, I think, two or three occasions at Chicago State. He's a Chicago native and uh, spends time here. And I interviewed Valjean Jeffers, and she did a talk on world building. So I, I felt very privileged to be in that company and had a great time because these were, for the most part, all people that I, I either knew or had spoken to or interviewed. And now you are also somebody who's been interviewed. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask you to do is if you do any of these con, uh, uh, conventions mm -hmm. or you are having an appearance or someplace, please post it up on the um, BSFS events calendar huh? so that people – can check you out, you know, like like if there's a weekend where you're, you know, what if you're at uh, at Comic Con or something like that, and there are other people who are gonna, they're gonna know you're gonna be there, they're gonna try to meet you. Oh, that's the other thing. Um, Roy Evans from BSFS drove down from Atlanta, and um, he he's a radio guy. He has his, uh, a radio network, the Jericho Broadcast Network, but he actually drove down to um, Tallahassee to attend a day's worth of sessions with us, and he even took me out to lunch. So, I mean, it's such a great group, the people who are on uh, the in the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, um, and it's basically a social networking site for black creatives and people who like black content or, or black-themed content. So um, it's a great place to belong to. Post up your events if you do go someplace because, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. Mm -hmm. So I would, uh, I hope you do that. And and Leslie, it has been a pleasure talking yeah. to you. You and, and you're, you. I mean, you are such a great example. And I know that some people get, <laughs> you know, they think saying that is tiresome, but it is. It's good to hear somebody who's focused and someone who really mounted a campaign of success, because mm -hmm. that's what we should all be doing. It's not you. You can't leave it up to chance. Not everybody is going to be sleeping in their car, 
you know, one year and the next year they're going to be selling all this Harry, uh, Harry Potter stuff. You know, <laughs> no. Lightning does lightning strikes so rarely. Um, right. So uh, I thank you for being here. I've had a great time with you. I hope you enjoyed it. I um, did. Thank and, you so much. That, you know, you're, I'm sure you're going to be invited back. Um, you, you know, next time you have something big coming up, let us know so that uh, Jarvis can book you. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Oh, well, no, don't thank me. Thank him. He's mm-hmm. he's management. I'm labor. So okay. that's how it breaks down. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm going to turn it over to Jarvis so he can say his good night to everybody and uh, just hang on and after we're done with the recording, okay? Sure. All right. Thank hey. you very much, Leslie. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks for everyone for participating on the show in whatever capacity that you have. Whether you are guests, whether you host, or you are listening in, each of you are appreciated. And this was a lot of great information on here um, that that was shared. I, I'm I'm sitting here just just soaking it all up. Both me and my son, he's sitting back here all quiet now, but he was like, "Who's that?" and all this stuff in the background. Mm-hmm. But I I really appreciate you guys sharing your time with us tonight with the community. And continue to share um, what we're doing with everybody that you know. Post in the event section and check out what some of the other people on the site are doing. It's, I mean, it's as of um, this weekend, the site is seven years old, and we're probably going to acknowledge that on Sunday. But um, Black Science Fiction Society has been around seven years, and there's seven years of information from around the world on here about black science fiction. Um, I was explaining to a friend of mine that I learned more in that first year of doing the site about black science fiction that I knew than I had uh, amassed over a whole lifetime because we're plugged into a network that's global and people share their information about books that are books and creative projects that are going on from wherever they are. But once again, thank you so much for participating on the radio show and continue to support us, and we will continue to support you by sharing everything that you're doing and buying your products and things of that nature. So with that said, thank you so much. Um, I'll probably be in the chat room in another 10 minutes. But thank you, thank you, thank you for participating. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Yes. Oh, yeah, and and one more thing, the – the BSFS, or actually the Genesis Science Fiction Radio YouTube channel, is now live. And through the the, the efforts of uh, James Jones, we have um, a bunch of these shows already posted up, and it's going to be a, a, a good channel for us to put other um, audio and video content from uh, BSFS. So definitely, I just posted the link, so check. definitely click it. I think we're up to uh, a little over 90 shows over the course of two years. Now, that's 90 different black creators from around the world sharing what they've been doing uh, with us. So definitely check it out. There's some interesting stuff on there. So on behalf of everybody who makes this possible and those people who drop by to make it great, uh, I want to thank everybody. Have a great, uh, great, I guess, evening. And I want to thank everybody who tuned in 
who listens later, who's here live, and uh, we'll see you again next week. So everybody have a good evening. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.